Hi everybody, so welcome to this. This is the uh, this is another in a series of podcasts that we've been doing, primarily for people working, uh, people who are members of the uh, ICA4 network, so that we can all kind of get to know each other's work and um, maybe chat about our ideas in a sort of less academic kind of setting. So today I'm going to be interviewing uh, Mike Livermore, who's a law professor at the University of Virginia. Hi Mike. Uh, hi, thanks for, thanks for having me. This will be a fun conversation. Uh, yeah, no worries. Um, so you, as I said, you're a law professor. Um, could you start off by just telling me a little bit about what kind of law you do and how you got interested in that? Sure. Um, so I primarily focus on environmental law and administrative law, kind of in my substantive areas. And then I also have an interest in the use of data science tools and natural language processing uh, to understand the law and legal development. And then that interest uh, in kind of the empirical uh, new tools and empirical legal studies also brings me to an interest in, in artificial intelligence and machine learning and how those tools have been integrated into the um, in, into government decision making, into judicial decision making, or the decision making of administrative agencies. And um, you know, in terms of how I got my start, I started uh, really was drawn to this area was was an interest in in the substantive questions uh, and substantive issues, really around environmental law. My first job out of high school was working for an environmental organization, and I spent my years in college and right after college working with environmental advocacy groups. And so that was kind of my interest as I went into law school. And, and then that drew me into kind of a broader set of questions around things like the topics like the use of economics and environmental decision making, um, the interaction of power and politics and, and reason in public decision making. Uh, and then the empirical study of law and legal institutions. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not surprised to learn that you started off partially in environmental law. I uh, remember the interview we did, we talked for about 15 minutes about what a species is. Right. Um, so, <laughs> and uh, that was really interesting. So I was I was really struck by how you're talking about artificial intelligence and its use in the, in the law. Mm -hmm. I suppose to a lot of people, a lot of people would never associate something like artificial intelligence with law and uh, you know academic law research. How how prominent are discussions of artificial intelligence in law, or are you kind of a more of an outlier at, at the moment? Yeah, I think there's you know I, I kind of think of a, a two two different conversations broadly, or uh, well a, a few couple different families of conversations, and and some are, are becoming more common, and and some are. Um, somewhat more obscure and I'm probably more most interested in the more obscure things naturally um, but so one one conversation that's become pretty I think broad and 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 something of a public conversation is the questions around the use of algorithms in various kinds of governmental decisions so for example uh, an area that has received a lot of attention in the United States is the use of machine learning algorithms and predictive algorithms in the context of criminal justice decision making. So a person is, for example, being brought before court, they haven't been convicted of any crime. Um, you know, it's kind of an early part of a criminal justice process. And there's a decision that needs to be made about whether to um, uh, give a, uh, a person bail, uh, allow them to post bail and then release them. Or not, or or just release them altogether without a requirement of posting bail, or just not allow them to post bail and to keep them in custody. And um, one of the questions that comes up is whether the person is a flight risk, whether they're they're likely to return for the rest of their proceeding. And there are there's a there's been a conversation about using predictive tools to take basically uh, various observable traits about a person. And then use that to generate a risk score that would then uh, could be used by a judge uh, when making a bail determination. Uh, same idea in the criminal sentencing context, right? It's like if, if a person is risky, uh, if there's a high risk of reoffense, then perhaps uh, it would make sense to keep them in jail longer and incapacitate them. 
And so there's so this is kind of something that is happening and has led to a substantial amount of conversation and and discussion of the pros and cons. Uh, so that's kind of one family of, of conversations that has, I think, really taken off quite a bit. The other set of conversations are really about using natural language processing and machine learning and related tools to understand the law. And that's more of a kind of a scholarly conversation uh, that's a little bit less in the in the public eye. Cool. Um, so should we look at, can I just ask about these? Um, so you have a machine and you might have a certain subject and the machine will take as input certain features of them, certain properties, things they've done, behaviors, past, things like that. And as a result, it will try and calculate how much of a flight risk they are, how yeah, much they're example. likely yeah. to skip bail. Yep. Uh, what kind of factors would feed into a decision like that? It could be, <laughs> you know, really a, a huge number. So there's kind of the practical what we actually see, and then there's like what you could theoretically imagine. So, you know, practically, it, it could be things like uh, what their prior criminal history was. Right. Are they someone that has engaged in, you know, what do those crimes look like? Have they engaged in crimes? What are the crimes? Uh, it could be personal characteristics, like whether they're married and have children. Um, uh, for example, whether they have a job, whether they own a home. Um, and this is kind of, you know, the things that are a, a person would probably observe and, and, and might take these kinds of things into, into consideration. Um, you know, their education level. Um, where they live, stuff like that. Uh, then there are, so th those are some factors that you can imagine being in an algorithm. There are other factors that are highly controversial, so things like gender and race. And so that's a whole conversation that we can talk about. Um, and then there's kind of this broader set of factors that you could kind of imagine um, down the road, things like, you know, just scooping up all of their social media information uh, that they've put out into the world. Or, um, uh, you know, files of the government, health records. Uh, you can imagine a genetic profile being used for something like this. So there's really almost no end to the um, the type of data that could theoretically be put into a model like this. Um, these days, the models are, 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 you know, fairly stripped down and you're talking about the kinds of observable features that, um, you know, that are not that strange for a, for a person to to, to imagine contemplating in a context like this. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. So um, there's all sorts of ethical issues raised by, I mean, the the issues with gender and race are almost, you know, very obvious. Yeah, they scream at you, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, the issue of, this, of using someone's social media profile is, uh. you know, I don't sit down and post on Twitter thinking, how's this going to look? when an algorithm is deciding if I'm right. going to skip bail next time right. I... <laughs> right. You know, it, that almost doesn't seem really fair either because, I mean, I don't know, that's not... that's. It's just yet another example of something where people do not post on social media for that purpose, but it gets appropriated and possibly even used against them yeah, you know, in right. the future. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's kind of like, what's our moral framework that we're using to think about this stuff, right? There's kind of a, you mentioned fairness or this, you know, this kind of the intuitive, like, how do we feel about it? Does it make us feel icky? That kind of thing. Um, and there's also questions like, uh, I, well, something to keep in mind I, that I often remind folks is, well, we have a system <laughs> of the a criminal justice system. And if we could make bail determinations more accurately, right, if we could actually calibrate um, bail determinations to risk, what, what would that mean? It would mean that more people would be released who don't need to be held, right? And it would also mean um, that we would hold the right people. But you could even think of this um, if, you're, if you're someone who worries about coercive, the coercive authority of the state and over-criminalization and over-incarceration, um, like we have in the United States, purely as a mechanism to reduce the prison population, reduce the number of people who are kept under state supervision, which is huge. Like if you could avoid um, holding a person uh, and, and just kind of release them on their own reconnaissance, that's 
a really big deal, right? When you hold mm. someone against their will in a, in, a, in a prison cell, their children may be unsupervised. They can't work. They would, mm. Many people would lose their jobs in that situation. Um, and so if we could be more confident in our judgments about who is or is not a flight risk, the idea is that we could hold fewer people. So that's kind of, I, I think that that's important to, to lay out on the table as one of the, the benefits that proponents of systems like this uh, often raise. Of course, on the other hand, you have to think about, you know, maybe fairness issues. Um, now, you know, the reality is, Lots of people post stuff on Twitter <laughs> that they yeah. don't realize what the social consequences are going to be. And, you know, I, I don't know what my personal level of sympathy is for that. You know, like think about it before you put it out into the world. Um, it's a matter of kind of personal responsibility. And, and it's, okay, you know, it's okay to hold people to account to a certain extent um, for their public behavior. So, uh, so yeah, so I think... You know, it, but it, but it's, but it's certainly, it's certainly tricky. And I think one of the issues too is that that comes up in this context. You know, and social media raises it is, it, it could be something benign that shows up on Twitter, right? Like seemingly benign. Like it might be that there's a certain characteristics of your tweeting that the machine algorithm picks up on as being predictive of you being a flight risk. But no human being would ever look at this tweet thread and think, or this tweet behavior and think, oh, this, is, this means this person's a flight risk. Um, it's just the machine learning algorithm comes up with something. It doesn't give you an explanation. I mean, it could be cat picks for all we know, right? The cat pick people, um, once you combine the fact that you tweet about cats with some other features like, you know, you have a PhD and you... Uh, uh, you know, like you subscribe to some magazine and just that random combination of features happens to be predictive of you being a flight risk. And that would be uh, very strange, but it could be something that comes out of the algorithm. And some people, you know, object to those kinds of predictions that don't seem to be grounded in anything that we would re- typically think of as, as reasoned uh, uh, kind of basis. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very... Uh... It's a very general problem with uh, using um, just purely statistical analysis to ascertain anything really important is that any increase of, in precision... Uh, it, so, you know, okay, people who post cat pics on Facebook, they might... That's a very, very, very large demographic. <laughs> but So it's not going to help you. So in order to be informative, maybe it's people who pass, uh, post cat pictures who also have a PhD, and then to narrow it down further, you need to say, well, they'll also be a, you know, they're a Lady Gaga fan, and so on and right, so forth. Right, right. And then you, you end up with this really big problem, which is if if you're not just going to use huge generalizations, you need to make it more precise, but then then it's more likely to be skewed by the and strange behaviors by some members of, by some members of that group. Like, it might not be, there might be nothing to do with the fact that you post uh, cat pictures and that you like Lady Gaga and have a PhD that makes you a flight risk, it just turns out that randomly a few people in that very specific demographic are a flight, have been a flight risk or something. So, you know, it almost almost feels like it shouldn't just be based on the statistical behaviour of that group, it should be based on whether those behaviours can be shown to contribute to you being a flight risk, if you see what I mean. So there's a couple of things going on there, right? So one is there's the possibility of the model overfitting, and that's kind of what you're describing, right, is that it's actually a spurious correlation. It, it, would, it wouldn't show up in, um, you know, as you continue to run the model, basically. Now, there are techniques in machine learning that, um, that are intended to avoid, you know, this kind of overfitting to a model where, you're, where your model is just being trained to noise, basically. And so you do things like cross-validation and holding out a training, holding out a testing set and you know, training the model on training data and kind of various things like that. And you also do need a lot of data. Um, that's, that's an important component of avoiding overfitting. But even if we assume that the correlations are real, like in the sense, just in the sense that they uh, show up on both training and testing data and they pass cross-validation criteria, that kind of thing. So it's a real correlation, but it's not causal, right? No one mm-hmm. thinks that you are a flight risk because you post cat videos and like Lady Gaga, right? It's just, it happens to be. And there's no causal model, right? We, mm. You know, 
it's not like we're saying, oh, we can identify, we think there's an underlying feature that causes both your proclivity towards Lady Gaga uh, fandom and your flight risk. It's just, it's just, it's, the models are utterly blind to that. There's no requirement or, or, or there's just, there's nothing in, in, on the, in the direction of developing a causal model. And so, again, that might lead to two different con- classes of concerns. We might be worried about uh, making these decisions on the basis of purely, um, uh, uh, you know, just kind of predictive correlations that aren't causal, just for that reason, because they're not causal, and then we we only want to be making these judgments on the basis of kind of causes. Yeah. And then the second, I think, distinct reason or distinct worry is that uh, if you don't understand the underlying causal process, then you're more likely to make mistakes in how you use the model and more likely to apply the model uh, outside the context of when it, where it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I suppose if you, if you were to demand, if you were to be really strict and demand that you can only use factors which are known through good causal modeling to have a causal impact on you being a flight risk, that sounds actually quite a sensible approach because it, it sounds like you're you're deciding whether someone, you know, you're deciding the fate of someone not just based on what groups they fall into, but based on actual features of them which have been proven to cause them, you know, to, to cause outcomes one way or the other. But of course, as soon as you start saying that, oh no, you're only allowed to use factors which are known causal contributors, you start cutting down the number of factors you can reasonably use. And then you're sacrificing kind of accuracy um, the other way. Right. right. So, there's, so there's that on the other side, right? So then we just say, okay, everybody gets the same bail. <laughs> we, we aren't, we're, we're not able to, to distinguish because that's what you want to be able to do. You want to be able mm. to distinguish. That's, that's the goal. And so you cut down the number of features. And so your power of doing, of doing that task of distinguishing um, goes down. There's also another issue, which is, you know, we might not be comfortable with causal factors, certain causal factors. So, so for example, um, it might be that there are um, certain genes that are associated with uh, risk aversion or risk, risk, risky behavior, mm. and that that correlates with being a flight risk. Well, you know, okay, do we are we comfortable with using a genetic profile for 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 criminal justice purposes? Is that the kind of feature that we want to be taking into consideration? It's causal. It's really, mm-hmm. I mean, if anything's causal, it's causal. But um, you know, but we might have concerns for other reasons. Mm. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it, <clears throat> um, so I think that um, uh, in many many areas, there's been a there's been a strong reaction against what you might call biodeterminism, which is, you know, the view that your your DNA somehow fixes your identity, fixes what your future behavior is going to be. And of course, there's all sorts of academic reasons that to think that biodeterminism is just false. But on a deeper level, there seems something deeply ethically wrong with taking someone's DNA, which is categorically and obviously completely beyond their control, and determining life-changing decisions based on based on that it just it that's the kind of fails the ickiness test for me you know it just doesn't feel right to me right well what's our model right like what's like, what are we trying to do i mean if you're a pure kind of consequentialist i don't know that it is um i mean obviously there's lots of different kind of consequentialist views and you would just take that ickiness into consideration i guess in, in the total utilitarian calculation say okay well it makes people uncomfortable and that's a reason not to do it but if it improves our predictive accuracy a lot and as a consequence, we can cut down on the number of people who are incarcerated. We cut down on the number of crimes. You know, people aren't getting like mugged and shot. Um, you know, that's a really big deal too. And so maybe we're willing to live with a little ickiness. Um, and of course, you know, we start to get into things like our criminal justice system is built under, you know, on certain conceptions of free will. <laughs> and mm. if we start to incorporate what look like biodeterministic. Uh, um, uh, mental models into our criminal justice system that seems to conflict with a, a huge rationale for why we feel okay with punishing people in the first place. So, uh, so there's a lot of tricky conceptual issues that come up. And of course, just to note for, for listeners, n- no one's really p- talking about using this, at least in, um, in jurisdictions that I'm familiar with. Although, again, it's something that you can imagine uh, mm. on the horizon. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's important to point out that this is 
this is not something that's going on right now. Right. This is, um, so, imagine, I suppose, when it comes to artificial intelligence and the influence of computers in uh, t- determining, so legal decisions are amongst the most important decisions anyone could ever make. Um, and when it comes to using artificial intelligence to help us with those decisions, or even perhaps make those decisions for us, the temptation is, certainly the temptation for someone like me, is to think, you know, oh, you know, good Lord, what are we doing? What 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 decisions are get, could this computer make a mistake? Because we feel really bad about the possibility of that. But I suppose someone might say something like, well, human beings are fallible as well. Juries make mistakes. Uh, a judge might make a mistake. All these kind, you know, someone's legal counsel could very easily make mistakes. Um, there's th- someone might say, well, so long as the machines make fewer mistakes, then overall it's better. Um, if we can, you know, for any one legal task, if you can hand it over to a machine that will make fewer mistakes than humans, then we should do that. And what do you think of a kind of very hardcore view like that? Well, yeah, it's. Um... I mean, I, I think the onus is on. So I, th- I find those those arguments to be strong. I think we need to recognize the strength of those um, those that style of arguments. Just say, look, again, these are important decisions. If we can if we could improve performance in terms of you know reduce errors, that is other things being equal a good thing. And so we need a reason that's going to stand on the other side of that. And what are the what are the types of reasons <laughs> that stand on the other side? So. One is the potential ickiness factor, right? Some mm-hmm. people might just not like it. They might feel weird about it. Now, I don't find, well, part of this is, I don't know. I, I, I don't get ick, icked out by many things. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, I, think um, I, have a, I have a bad disgust reflex. And so it's it personally not very compelling. But I recognize other people's, you know, psych, psychology matters. And so um, so that's certainly part of it. That, that having been said, though, so much of that is cultural, and and people's preferences might really adapt very quickly. We mm. actually have to see whether people find it icky. You know, the, it might be that you know philosophers and legal academics tend to find things icky that the general population doesn't, mm. um, and they're really the ones that are. We should be. You know, everyone gets one vote. Um, so so I think that we have to take that into consideration. But then there are broader questions about things like the rule of law and you know procedural justice and other other matters like a machine at least the current iterations don't provide reasons for their um for their decisions and there are kind of practical there's a practical importance to reason giving as a Mm -hmm. way of you know kind of checking the uh, judge's decision making and subjecting it to external review and so on um but again that really has to do with error correction and these debates are only really interesting if we kind of hypothesize that the machines are going to outperform humans you know, from an error perspective, because otherwise it's kind of trivial. But the um, but maybe peop- there's something special, and not just special in like a consequentialist way that people feel better when there is a reason that's offered to them, although that's true. But maybe even just it's just part of what the state owes to citizens to provide a reason of a certain kind that a machine can't provide. Now, I think that one can articulate that view. I don't think that's a slam dunk proposition, and, and we do, you know, need to balance that type of concern against the performance metrics that we might be worried about. Hmm. So, I mean, there's so many ideas there. So, you start off in your papers. You have a real talent for um, putting forward a really gripping image, and you start off one of your papers with this image of a fully automated legal machine. And you have uh, an entire country which has one big legal machine. There's no input from any human beings. It takes information and data as inputs and churns out legal decisions as outputs. So that's, you know, stepping away from anything that's even vaguely realistic for us Mm -hmm. at the moment and extrapolating to that kind of almost science fiction-y image. I mean, could you tell me a bit about that image um, and where it comes from? Because that might be a good way in for us to think about like reason giving and participation rights and things. Right. So I mean, part of this is just to kind of go into extremists and just think, you know, what what's the kind of, you know, the furthest example of, of the 
this, these trends that one can imagine. And, and kind of a related um, uh, element of that, of that image is, is the idea that the law, the law as adopted by a legislature through a, a standard democratic process instantiates a set of self-executing rules, right? That that's what's going on, that the, the legislature votes in the same way that the legislature votes to adopt, you know, health care reform and, and na- in natural language. And instead here, here under the hypo, would vote on essentially a set of computer code that could be executed, where the computer code might include things like neural networks that are trained on data that can recognize images or recognize um, you know, whatever, uh, whatever kind of data inputs from the world that it needs in order to, to execute this code. So the legislature says, you know, uh, drive reasonably uh, these days, right, hmm. or do something reasonably. Um, and instead what it would do would, under this kind of hypo, what the legislature would adopt would be a, a kind of a fully rendered uh, – a system of information that would be sufficient to make a judgment in every context about whether driving behavior was reasonable or not based on some data inputs. Hmm. And so the question is, is this a good or a bad thing? Kind of on classic jurisprudential grounds. So, you know, in a sense, it's good because it, re- the, the um, you know, it's more legislative. It puts more power directly in the hands of the legislature. There's not this problem of delegation to administrative agencies or to mm-hmm. judges. So it has a kind of democratic, the, de- the link between the final determination and the democratic process, the legislative process, is much closer because you don't have these kind of intermediary institutions. Um, you could imagine a reduction in error if we understand error to mean the kind of the princi- error that arises out of the principal agent problem where, again, when you delegate to judges or to um, or to agencies, one of the things the legislature has to worry about is that, you know, those eight, those judges or those agencies are going to have their own preferences. And so there's going to be some space between, the, you know, what ultimately is decided on the on the ground and what the legislature might want. Um, and sorry, so, that's the that's the principal agent problem. That would be the principal agent problem. Right. Um, and so which is, I think, of slightly different from the Democratic um, kind of legitimacy issue. Those uh, those are related. Um, now, on the other hand, we might worry that, uh, that the machine or that this, this kind of fully executable law <clears throat> might make mistakes and that part of what we like about a human system is that it creates discretion, right? We like the discretion. We like the role of judges who can take into account new circumstances, right? And so you kind of have this balancing. You, I think what's nice about the hypo is it really forces us to um, kind of drill into what it is that we like and don't like about like uh, something an institution like judicial discretion. So, um, so yeah. So I think that that, uh, that that's 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 kind of a fun. It's a fun thought experiment. But again, of course, it is a little way, little ways down the road before we could imagine something like that. That having been said, there are definitely people who are interested in the prospect of rendering more of the law into code that could be executed, at least in theory. Yeah, so um, I was really interested in this thing you sort of touched upon to do with uh, the giving of reasons for judicial decisions. Um, So I guess there's two elements there. The first one is you feel like if the state is going to say to you that you have transgressed the law and that you will receive some kind of, um, you'll receive some kind of punishment for that, then it is the state must provide you with a reason uh, and there's a couple of issues one of them is that this feeling that it's it's that's not just something that our legal system just happens to do that's somehow a legal right that someone has to be supplied a reason for the judgment against them and i guess the other element to the to the same issue is you mentioned that machines couldn't provide the relevant reasons or not the kind of reasons that we really want could could you kind of embellish on a bit on this idea that i mean this idea that we have a right to um to, to be given a reason for a judicial decision does that stem from the right to appeal or the right to transparency or what's the kind of 
ethical reasoning behind that idea. Right. I, I mean, I think it is, uh, it's related to, to transparency and appeal, although I think of those as more kind of pragmatic justifications for, for reason giving, which are important, um, but could be balanced against other things. I think it would just be almost along the lines of, you know, as <clears throat> to respect your, um, as a matter of respect, it's the kind of, it recognizes an appropriate relationship between the individual and the state where um, the state is not simply exercising coercive authority over, over a subject. It recognizes the person's role as kind of a co-participant in, the, in a broader democratic process and as a, re, and, and as a, rational, um, as a rational actor, a rational agent with autonomy. And that's the reason giving. But then out of that uh, arises the requirement to engage in some some reason giving um, as just like a kind of a fundamental component of an appropriate relationship between the state um, and the people um, who are subject to the state's authority. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, my my thinking on this is, has, has evolved a little bit as well, you know, in terms of the um, I've added a little bit to my kind of my hypo because I think one one something that's kind of always bugged me about this line of reasoning is that the the reasons given by courts are often pretty crappy. They're, <laughs> right? They're they're make weight. They you know they they're easily unwound upon close inspection. They're they're syllogistic. They're conclusory. You know it's 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 just often not good. Not very good reasoning. Um, they fail to recognize indeterminacy, right? Where they say, well, you know, we really recognize the law could be interpreted one or the other way, but, mm. you know, we've decided on these grounds. And they just say, you know, oh, this is just what the law says, right? Which is just silly often. And judges don't necessarily know why they come to the conclusions that they come to, right? They, they might get a well, gut feeling yeah. <laughs> about what the right outcome is and then come up with a post hoc rationalization to themselves and, and then more broadly to the public um, and to the person who, you know, that's affected by the decision. So if we kind of recognize the existing state of reason giving in real human judicial and governmental institutions, you know, if we deny someone's benefits for disability, for example, um, mm. you know, lots of decisions that are made um, by government actors that are accompanied by something that looks like a set of reasons. But, you know, what's the relationship of those reasons to the actual causal factors that led to the determination? Um, you know, how persuasive are those reasons? How solid is the, is the actual internal logic of the reasons? You know, it's pretty bad. And one could imagine, hypothetically, a machine that could give fairly persuasive reasons that were actually better on many of the criteria that we would uh, use to evaluate reason giving, there actually would be better than the reason giving that we get in the current system. And mm. so, um, so I think that you know, there's, a, there's a, kind of a, a lot of discussion about explainability and reason giving in this context. And I think to, to just kind of push it further, if we assume that a machine could be programmed to spit out something that looks like a, a reason or a, a set of reasons, you know, how do we feel about that? And what are the criteria for those reasons? And um, is there anything that we still won't like about that, right? Is, that, is there something that we still think is not a, um, you know, would be undermining of, of people's rights or, 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 you know, otherwise problematic? Yeah I, I, yeah, I think those were all really good points. I mean, the, the the one point about the fact that essentially, usually, not not even just often, but usually people don't really know why they made certain decisions. And there are all sorts of factors completely beyond their control and beyond the other person's control that were influencing those decisions. So what's so special about the decision, the reasons given by a judge? Um, but I suppose the, the other issue you touched on is, um, you know, could a computer give a reason? Um, it reminds me of some of the controversies. I mean, because artificial intelligence in these contexts is so in its infancy, the example I'm going to use is uh, AlphaGo, the Go playing computer. So famously in its world championship match against Lee Sodol, 
um, it played a very very surprising move called which has now become known as move 37 and it sparked a controversy because it was so creative and so beyond anything a human could imagine that um, that that people just couldn't possibly have predicted that a machine would have done it and previously in the 90s when Deep Blue played the world chess champion Gary Kasparov something extremely similar happened I can't remember the uh, precise I can't remember the precise setups, but I think it was Kasparov tried to sacrifice a pawn and um, uh, Deep Blue refused to take the pawn. And uh, I believe some members of Kasparov's team were uh, extraordinarily shocked by this to the point that they couldn't quite accept that a computer would be capable of creativity. So there, what happens, what you've got is a computer doing something totally surprising. People demand a reason for it. And in a sense, there is a good reason. You can just say the reason is because the computer code works in this way. It had these inputs. Given those inputs, these operations will be performed upon those inputs. And that is the result you'll get. And that's the reason. And if you ask why it had that particular algorithm, you can just say, well, that is because how it was programmed. And it was programmed in this fashion for these reasons. So it might. You know, if you said that in a legal decision, people might be a bit unsatisfied, but it might be the case that what we really need to do is change our conception of what a good reason for a legal decision might be. Maybe it is a good enough reason for a legal decision that it worked, uh, that it, it was the result of an algorithm which we have really good independent reason to think works really well for the following reasons, you know. Right, right. And of course, it's, I mean? it's, it's like, Part of what we would want to think about here is why are we why are we asking for reasons, right? Um, so, so move thirty seven is a great example, or the deep blue the deep blue move, um, and these kind of you know uh, extreme creativity moments where you, that we see out of these algorithms. I, the an example or or an analogy I kind of think of is 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 artists, you know, another kind of or or, or poets or songwriters or whatever. And I always, it, I think it's a funny feature of the kind of modern art world or the modern literary world where we ask these creative types to provide us kind of with the reasoning behind some of their <laughs> choices. And I, I always think, I mean, I think it's like something that artists have to master is, is explaining why they do this and that and the other thing. And I think part of the reason for that is people are not comfortable with their own judgments with respect to kind of modern art and what makes something good versus something scribble. You know, they don't want to. They don't want to seem silly, but anyway, it's a it's a feature of the of this of the of the moment, and I, I just think this is bizarre. For one thing, it's completely ad hoc. It's you know it, it, the need to provide reasons could actually interfere with the creative process. You, you know, if you're thinking too much ahead of time, um, and often the reason that's given is just silly. It doesn't sound like reason. It's just like a it's kind of it's clearly just like a little story, right? Which is fine yeah. if it makes people feel feel better or feel good. Um, as part of a, you know their, an artistic experience, or but but I, I've always thought it's kind of a funny thing, and I think you could even do this with respect to chess moves. A, a human makes a really creative chess move, you know. You might ask why they did it, and maybe they could provide you with some kind of explanation. But you know, the real why is something that's happening at a neurological level. <laughs> Uh, you know, years of training. I mean, that's probably the best answer that they can give is like years of training and I've been in similar situations and I had a feeling and, you know, that kind of thing, which is not super satisfying, but it is, um, you know, it's probably more accurate. But of course, the, what I, so what I think of is, again, staying with the chess or the go example, why do we want an explanation for move 37? I think the reason is because I want to be able to recognize situations like the move 37 situation and i want to be able to kind of extract a lesson a more general lesson that i could kind of semantically instantiate in my brain about when to do what right mm. and so it's it's like the when uh when a when a when a chess uh you know someone who's very good at chess the reason that they give reasons i think is one to facilitate enjoyment of the game for viewers and then also to teach someone how to do something, right? So say you're building a bridge, you know, say you're learning how to build bridges by working with someone who builds bridges. It would be nice if they say like, okay, this is why I'm doing that. And I'm using this material because it has this strength under these situations. And, you know, the lines that I'm selecting here are, you know, the reason I'm doing this is 
there's these geome- you know, geometric principles and load bearing and whatever. And in the process of watching one bridge be built, you're learning principles that allow you to then go build other bridges. So the, the reason giving process there is this process of communicating general principles that you can apply elsewhere. And so you can imagine part of this is important for courts, right? So part of the value of the reason giving that goes on with courts is that essentially rules are established that facilitate the consistent application of the law over time between different judges. So you say, look, you know, um, you know, you set a fire on your own property that then bled onto someone else's property and damaged their crops. Are you going to be held liable for that um, for that fire? You know, that's a very specific situation. The judge could just say yes, liability, but the judge could more generally say yes, liability because you were engaged in this hazardous activity, or mm. you know, it was foreseeable that you that the thing that you were doing on your property would cause this damage on someone else's property. You know, the wind. Sh- but maybe wind wouldn't hold you liable if you set a fire to, you know, do something reasonable like burn, you know, just burn a small amount of something. And then a tornado came down and picked up your, your barrel where the fire was being set and, and launched it, you know, t- 10 miles down the road and, and, and it, you know, hit a factory and the factory exploded. Are you going to be liable for the, all of those damages? And maybe the court would say, no, it's not foreseeable. That's, you know, not in the scope of why we're worried about, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the point in some way of the reason giving exercise one is to provide the subject who's being you know say the 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 plaintiff and the claim the factory owner in that little hypo with an explanation for why they're not going to get damages but also it's to help other people structure the behavior so that we can look at that decision and say okay this is the kinds of things that courts are going to hold people liable for and the kinds of things that courts are not going to hold people liable for and then future judges can make recourse to that decision and it's not just a bare decision liability no liability there are some articulated principles that they can use to try to um, achieve some uh, some consistency between cases. So I think that, so we really have to think in some way about what the purpose of the reason-giving exercise is. Um, there's a, it, it, we've been talking, there's kind of some emphasis on this relationship between the subject and the state and respect for individuals, but there are these kind of broader social um, purposes that the reason-giving exercise uh, serves. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's really interesting because I suppose I suppose you might worry any reason that a machine could give would just not fulfill those functions. So, you know, there's a sense in which, of course, if I want to, if I ask literally why did AlphaGo make that move, you know, if I'm willing to put in the time and effort, I can find out an answer to that, which is, by all reasonable accounts, a good answer to that question. But the reason, maybe what is what you're suggesting the reason you know you might find it a bit unsatisfactory is when you is that when you ask a human go player why did you do that thing you don't what you're really after is not a literal explanation of why they did it you know they're not going to say well because uh, my neurons fired and my hand moved in this particular direction you know they're going to say something you can take away like um well, I don't know anything about Go, but a, a chess player might say something like, you know, you should occupy the center with your pawns or something like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, exactly. And that's the reason we find this reason giving so unsatisfactory is because it's not actually doing the thing we secretly want from, uh, you know, general principles. Right, um, exactly. Now, now imagine, however, a different situation, which was to take all of the text commentary of every chess match and every chess book that's ever been created and train an algorithm to spit out, upon observation of a series of moves, a rationale for those moves in natural language that mm. actually provides, makes recourse to general principles of play and so on. Imagine that kind of on top of the chess program. So the chess program does its thing, and it's just trying to maximize um, some you know, optimization function that it's been programmed to, to you know, work towards. Um, and it's trained on, you know, billions of, of, of instances or whatever. And so that's the kind of the reason, the causal reason for uh, any given move. But then there's this other algorithm that observes the gameplay and then spits out running commentary in natural language of kind of reasons that people find satisfying and actually in the sense that they, it helps them play go better. Right. Mm. And they enjoy the game. They enjoy watching the game more because this, you know, because of this running commentary. So it actually serves those functions of 
reason giving in this context, promote enjoyment and promote learning. Um, but the reasons that are given are, you know, kind of categorically different from the, you know, the reason that you were contemplating of, you know, looking at the actual computer code and you could just causally walk through the steps of, of how, you know, a particular decision was made for a particular move. Hmm. Um, when you were talking about um, when artists and stuff are given are asked for reasons for their work, I was your response, your, your view on that really reminded me of, I don't know if this is true, but I read somewhere that when Don McLean was asked what his song American Pie means, he said uh, on a very, very deep level, what it means is that I've never worked a day of my life since, um, which I was quite, <laughs> I was quite liked as a reply. Um, right, right. I mean, I think a lot of artists, they, they, I almost feel like they're spoofing people when they give some of the reasons that they give. Actually, yes, I think, I think, I think I they're think playful. So. Yeah, I, I think so as well. You, I think, I think that with certain, um, there's certain artists where I sometimes think that the titles they give to their artworks are so clearly sort of um, divorced from what the artwork looks like it's about that the, the title is not meant to enlighten the work but the, the work is itself meant to be a comment on how suggestible people can be if you provide something with a certain title um, yeah, no, and that's part of the fun, right? But um, but yeah. I think it's it's not as straightforward, you know. And that's and that's and that's and that's that's interesting, right? I mean, it's an interesting play on the on this, um, you know, this uh, this social phenomenon of talking about these uh, these artifacts. Mm, yeah. Um. So let's get back to something you mentioned. I'd like to think about the link between two things you've mentioned earlier, which is indeterminacy in the law on the one hand and the relevance of natural language processing um, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that, so of course, um, there's indeterminacy in the law, as we all know, and one source of that indeterminacy is language. So I think in the interview with me, one example you gave was um, uh, driving without due care and attention. What does attention mean precisely? Mm -hmm. Things like this, or, or laws around the preservation of species. What is a species, and so on. So that looks like. So someone naive to the area might say something like, "Ah, so language is really vague. It's really indeterminate. That's not something a computer can really handle. Computers like precision. They like things to be very precisely codified. So, you, you know." A very natural thought, I'm not sure how strong it is, but a very natural thought would be something like, well, this is going to be a natural impediment to using computers um, in the application of the law because the law, because it's written in a language, is indeterminate and vague. And those are the kinds of things that you just need a human being to be able to, to grasp things like context and things like that in order to, in order to be able to resolve. Um, what do you think of that kind of challenge? Yeah, so I think that there's, you know, there's kind of different types of indeterminacy that are relevant here. And, you know, we can think of pure linguistic indeterminacy as, um, as one kind of problem, right, that we're, the kind that we're talking about. It's just concepts are vague or they can be ambiguous, you know, when, when they're expressed in natural language. And, you know, and we could say that that's an inherent thing that happens when any symbolic system attaches to the world. And, and I think that as a as a kind of historical matter, efforts to uh, to create uh, knowledge representation systems for the law have run into these problems. Right now, what you can do is you could you could build the internally consistent logical system, like for example, you know, uh, you could have a standard for for negligence. So it's like, is there a duty? Was there an injury? Was, you know, was the injury foreseeable? And, hmm. you know, did you break the duty? And, you know, was there causation? You know, just, and then you can just check the boxes and you can say, okay, if yes, then go on to the next question. If yes, then go on to the next question and keep doing that until you get to an end. And, and at the end, it's either yes, there's liability. There's no, there's liability. And that could be constructed as kind of, again, law students do this all the time. They read cases and the whole point of a legal education in some ways in the common law system is to say, how do you extract a set of rules out of the, um, out of a set of you know prior decisions? But then you get into this kind of other issue is that the answering of yes or no is often a, that's 
where judgment is required of some kind. And so you mm-hmm. can say, all right, you know, is, is behavior reasonable? Well, you know, that's fine. You, you know, that could be an input into some decision tree. Is the behavior reasonable or was the harm foreseeable? But there's clearly a substantial element of judgment to determine whether, you know, some, any particular harm was, uh, was foreseeable or behavior was reasonable. Now, you know, I think these days in a lot of contexts, there's reasons to think that we could probably get around, you know, that, that modern machine learning um, uh, applications could get around some of these issues. So, um, so at the very least, you, you know, you can train an algorithm that would say, based on this data, you know, what would, what would a human being, what would people, would people judge this conduct to be reasonable, right? So it's just, again, let's just kind of imagine that system. So that way, you know, it's, it's, a more, it's more probabilistic, it's more weighted. And so, you know, you can imagine getting around some of these, some of these kind of vagueness or ambiguities because it would just be saying, like, making a prediction about how a language user would use this term um, or how it would apply in a particular context. So that's one issue of kind of linguist straight, just kind of linguistic indeterminacy. On the other hand, you know, there's a there's a kind of a, an, an additional issue, um, which is um, I, I kind of borrow from uh, from a colleague, Fred Schauer, the idea of legal indeterminacy. And here, what we're really talking about is unintended consequences. Right? Is that the a legislature, for example, adopts a law? Let's imagine there's no linguistic uh, indeterminacy with respect to some case. Okay, so the case comes up. The law says defendant loses, um, you know, whatever it is. And it's just very clear that that's what the law says. But that outcome is just (laughs) clearly wrong. It's not what the legislature intended. It violates, you know, norms of efficiency and justice. It's utterly unjustified. The only reason that we would ever do this is because just because the law said so. And we might say that's the role of the judge is to, you know, often in part because there's usually at least a little linguistic indeterminacy to say, all right, we're going to, you know, kind of uh, use the indeterminacy that's there in the in natural language to get us to a, a correct result, okay, because we don't like this result. And so, so then a lot turns on how you think about that, right? So on the one hand, um, you could argue that that's good because we're getting the right result, um, and it's not, you know, we're not violating some, you know, efficiency and leading to some unjust, out- unjust outcome. On the other hand, you know, obviously we have a judge who's, you know, we have the law. <laughs> the law is very clear about what the outcome is supposed to be by hypothesis. And we're not doing that. And, yeah. you know, how do, how do we feel about that? So, so in any case, I think that that's, you know, that's an important because, you know, you could imagine the machine, um, I think you can. I think the straight argument that text, that natural language vagueness, uh, and just kind of the, the the vagueness of symbolic systems applied to the real world is always going to run into problems. I don't think that that ultimately is going to bear out. Um, my, but I do think that the second class of concerns about essentially these these what we can call errors or unintended consequences. We're not getting away from that. That I think is 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 really baked into the to the system, and we have to just ask, you know, what kind of errors are we are we gonna are we willing to live with, and um, are there, you know, how important is it to have a human? Because when we introduce a human, we're going to get different kinds of errors, and you know, those those kinds of questions. Yeah, there's um, it's interesting you're talking about unintended consequences of legal decisions. So there's a case that's discussed by certain philosophers. Um, so here's something that sounds very reasonable um you shouldn't knowingly cause harm to somebody without at least seeking their consent first if you don't if there's no really good reason to do so so that sounds reasonable doesn't it Mm -hmm. um but then there was a case where um somebody to be honest i may be getting the details slightly wrong but i know somebody sued his parents for bringing him into the world and his grounds were that bringing bringing someone into the world will cause them harm and you know it will because some harm will always come to everyone who's ever born at some point um and they didn't seek his consent obviously because he wasn't alive at the time um but i think the vast majority of people would think that 
that doesn't, even though the principle that it's based on is very reasonable, uh, that doesn't constitute a good reason, um, you know, to bring a court case against your parents bringing you into the world. Right, and, and, and we could even kind of imagine that the, the like the, however the, the, the law in this case was stated, if you just take the terms and apply their normal meaning, hmm. that it's very clear that the present that the parents are liable for damages. Let's just hmm. imagine that situation. But but that was not contemplated by the legislature. No. They were thinking about something totally different, or the judges, or whoever made the rule. And so that's that's like this situation where you could have a very linguistically clear rule that hmm. leads to a, you know maybe an absurd outcome. And what do you do? Do you just do you, do you apply the law in that case and then change the law if you want, or do you you know try to get around applying the law to a context where it's very clearly applicable, but leads but but is kind of obviously uh, let's assume obviously wrong. Mm. Well, I don't. I mean, obviously you know more about this than me, but isn't there um, isn't it the case that juries are allowed to say? that uh, this person has indeed violated these laws, but that nonetheless they shouldn't receive any punishment because the laws clearly weren't intended for the for this kind of case. Isn't, I'm sure there's something like that in the legal process. So, so what, what you're describing, I think, is, is jury nullification. Hmm. So, um, and jury nullification is a fairly controversial um, topic. Um, okay. So... So, so in the situation now, it, I think a jury, if a jury, so let's say, you know, there's some crime it has certain elements to it and then, um, you know, and then whatever, there's, there's, there's a stage of determining guilt and innocence and then there's a stage of determining the punishment. Now, the allocation of responsibility can fall different ways. And it's often, at least in the U.S., juries make a determination of guilt and innocence, but the judge ultimately determines the punishment. Hmm. So if the, if the, if a jury decides and says in you know if the foreman for the jury says to the court we voted and we believe that every element of the crime is uh, has been fulfilled but we think this crime is unjust or you know shouldn't be a crime hmm. the judge is to say okay thanks for your opinion <laughs> guilty <laughs> you're saying guilty <laughs> and you know here is the here is accordingly here is the uh, here's the punishment now what a jury could do and this is the nullification is they just say not guilty, and they don't have to provide any reasons. Actually, that's part of the system, and so the oh, judge, okay. so they just they just come out and they could all say we think in the jury room, they can say we actually think he met the, the defendant engaged in conduct that met every element of this crime, but we think this crime is unjust. Hmm. We don't think this well, should the be law is unjust. The law is unjust. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's say possession of marijuana is maybe an example. We say, actually, we think that the, he, he, he possessed the marijuana. He was caught. The statute just says possession of this amount, and that's all there is to it. But we're going to just say not guilty <laughs> because yeah. we think it should be the case that marijuana should be legal. And it is an infringement on people's rights to, uh, to, uh, to have a law otherwise. And a jury can do that in a sense. It has the power to do. Now, there's questions about whether that is, uh, you know, violating its, you know, its 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 role, mm. right? Is that you know? And and there are some there are some famous instances in my thing, but there are some famous instances where, like, I think a judge, you know, you can't, what you can't do, and what protects jury nullification is you can't uh, like throw the jury in jail and say, you know, you violated your responsibility as a juror, mm-hmm. right? And that at the ultimately that fact defends jurors' ability to kind of do whatever they want. Uh, and conversely, they could say, actually, we don't think this guy actually committed the crime in this case, but we think this guy's a bad guy and ought to go to jail, and so we're going to say guilty, even though we don't believe yeah. he committed this crime. <laughs> they can do that, too. Yeah. Um, you know, just as a ma- not like, I mean, just mean they are empowered to do that. Now, whether they ought to do that, whether that's a... a an appropriate exercise of their power is uh, um, uh, obviously a different question, but just they could get away with it, right? And so, um, so in any case, that's yeah, that's that's kind of your, the, the nullification thing. 
And so you could argue, again, it's kind of like, do we think that's good or do we think that's bad? You know, and you can imagine the arguments on both sides. It is a feature of our system and it is, um, it has certain consequences, but, um, you know, but it's not, let's just say it's, it's not a slam dunk that uh, since a machine wouldn't be able to do that, then it would automatically be bad. Also, for what it's worth, you could program the machine to make a prediction about what kinds of laws. You can always do that, right? You just say, okay, whatever the human thing is that you want to maintain, oh, well, can we just have a machine that does that too? Um, yeah, so I, I was just about to ask this very question. So if you go to a really abstract level, you might say something like, um, look, all... All these problems, this is kind of a philosopher's solution, as in not really a solution, just a kind of (laughs) vague (laughs) gesture. But um, you could say, well, all these problems, what they basically come down to is that there are certain cases where we're pretty sure a machine would make a decision that we really wouldn't like. Um, And there are all sorts of different ways. Legal indeterminacy is one, and it also might be the case that there are unforeseen consequences and so on, and and maybe a machine would have difficulty taking into account various elements of context. So, you know, someone might could always just say, well, okay, for any class of decisions that you wish the machine could make, take a load of data about what decisions have been made by human beings, and construct the algorithm with those in mind as well. So, if you if you want it to be to to be able to predict the unintended consequences of a law. You, you take all the decisions where people have said, oh, that's not how the law was meant to be applied. Feed that into the algorithm. And, and for any problem like that, you can always just take a load of human decisions where we've done things we think are, you know, where we've corrected places where we think the law is misfiring, for want of a better word, um, and just program them into its algorithm. I mean, could, what, would some, what would a skeptic say in response to that kind of very optimistic kind of... Um, well, yeah, of course it's always open to say, well, that's impractical or whatever. And I think the mm. response is, well, you know, I'm a philosopher, so I'm not held to the standard. <laughs> so of I can say whatever I like. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so let's imagine it, right? And so I think, and I, I, and I think, and in a way, this was part part of the goal of the of the of the, the hypo that you mentioned earlier of the kind of the, the machine that can do this is, yeah, let's let's think like in in the extreme version, is there anything here? Is there any residuum? So the, what I've come up with, at least for now, provisionally, is here's a distinction that I, I don't think a machine could ever, or at least on you know any machine that we're contemplating. What here's something they lack. So so you're a judge. I'm a criminal defendant. You're going to put me. Um, you're going to sentence me. You empathize. You know what it's like. Hmm. to have your liberty restricted, or at least you can imagine what it's like to have your liberty restricted. And, yeah. you know, because you've had certain experiences in your in, in your life, and we just share, I think I referred in pieces, umwelt, right? Like a, a kind of a life world. We both eat food <laughs> to survive. You know, we have s- similar desires. We have our perceptive apparatuses very, very, very similar. We have eyes and ears and taste buds and skin. You know, we know what it's like to feel you know, another human being, you know, uh, like to, to, to um, you know, embrace another human being mm. or to, to be on the other side of violence um, or physical violence or to, to experience the, the feeling of fear or love or whatever else, right? So, I mean, there's just human beings are incredibly similar to each other in, in these kinds of basic, you know, perceptions and our cognition and our emotions and everything else. And the machine is, is an alien, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it's it's actually instantiated, you know, chemically different kind yes. of uh, uh, a substrate. It is uh, it eats electricity, not food, <laughs> right? It's utterly different. Even if it was self conscious, which we of course we, there's the question of consciousness and everything else. Hmm. Um, even if we had some confidence that it was conscious, which that would be a whole other, you know, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but. Even if it was conscious, even if we stipulate that, it's conscious as a machine, not as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's ultimately what I – and it, it could simulate sympathy. It could simulate empathy. It could pretend to have empathy, which is, which is, which is to say. 
But maybe that's not enough. I, I really, in order for the state to execute its responsibilities properly, the person who's making this decision has to has to have that base shared set of experiences in order to have the kind of empathy that's required. Now, I can articulate that. I think it is a real residuum. It is a real difference. You know, I don't know how much weight to put on it. Um, I don't know if people actually care. I don't know that real live judges actually have all that much empathy. Yeah, they hmm. maybe learn to shut off their empathy, but they, they do share a life world with me, right? They are hmm. fundamentally human beings and, and, and I'm a human being and, and we can't get around that. So, um, so in any case, maybe that's something that can't even in principle be trained into an algorithm. It would literally have to be a machine that fully simulated, including conscious experience, a human being, perhaps in a physical substrate, um, that's so equivalent to what a human being is that it would just be a, like literally an artificial human being, in which case yeah. maybe that would be, you know, that, then then there's no difference and maybe that's fine. Yeah. So you, you so the, this might be quite, an, quite a profound note to end on. So for you, the ultimate obstacle to the increased use of artificial intelligence in the legal system is that you wouldn't, you wouldn't want something to send you to prison unless it had the slightest glimmer of just what that would feel like to have your freedoms taken away and to have all those things you take for granted suddenly taken away you, even if the machine were you know generated good results on a certain percentage of, t- of time you wouldn't be comfortable having something so profound happen to you by something which was completely and utterly incapable of empathy and totally and utterly alien to your way of life is that a fair way of summarizing yeah the only yes i think it's a good summary the only thing i would add is i don't know that i necessarily feel that way i i i feel like that's an articulation of a possible sentiment that that i think is coherent and sensible um Mm. although i'm not sure that that's my my own view Mm. okay um, well, we've, we've uh, I mean, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've gone over time a little bit, um, but it only remains for me to thank you very much for um, all your time and for talking about all these uh, really interesting issues and for putting up with questions from a philosopher. Oh, I love questions from philosophers. They're philosophers, they're my favorite. So yeah, thanks, thanks very much. <laughs> this, is, this has been a lot of fun. Great, thanks very much.